Our Second Chance, Part 3. The rich industrialist was horrified to find the fisherman lying beside his boat, smoking a pipe. Why aren't you out fishing? Because I have enough fish for the day. Why don't you catch some more? <laughs> What would I do with them? You could earn more money. Then you could have a motor fitted to your boat to go into deeper waters and catch more fish. Then you would have enough money to buy nylon nets. These would bring you more fish and more money. Soon you would have enough money to own two boats, maybe even a fleet of boats. Then you would be a rich man like me. <laughs> What would I do then? Then you could sit back and enjoy life. <laughs> and what do you think I'm doing right now? You're listening to the Sill Podcast with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Episode 150 The Undefinable Spirit. Andrew Welch, Our Second Chance. Come on in, have a seat. Join the conversation. Well, we're back to record the third and final part of our trilogy with returning guest Andrew Welch covering his latest book release titled Our Second Chance, which, as previously mentioned, is the sequel and offers solutions to conditions identified in the first book titled The Value Crisis, published six years ago in 2015. In the previous two podcasts, we covered the proposed universal basic income in part one, TSP 148, and then we focused on the idea of the gift economy in part two, TSP 149, and today we delve into a looking forward scenario with the third and final segment, TSP 150, which we are calling a new dawning and which will be available on Mother's Day, May 9th. Hello, Andrew, and uh, welcome back. Welcome back. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> Andrew, in both your books, you clearly describe and define the three value personae that are in all of us, the citizen, the consumer, and the investor. And the influence each has had in shaping our past and present and will have in determining our future. Before we look ahead, where do you think we took a wrong turn in the past in getting to where we are today? Well, I'm not sure that it is necessarily a wrong turn. I think it's partly just a step in evolution. And I think I may have mentioned in the last podcast a story about the caterpillar that grows up into being the butterfly. Unless you go through the caterpillar stage, you will never be able to reach the butterfly stage. So I think in some respects, to get civilization and humanity to where it is today, we had to go through that era of seeing the whole wide world as one big shopping cart and consume, consume, consume. We had to reach that point where we could suck oil out of the ground and have massive amounts of power and energy from a simple gallon jug of gasoline and so on in order to make the progress that we've got, in order to get to the point where we are at now. So right. I don't think it's necessarily a wrong turn, but I think it's a turn that it's time has come. We're ready to move on. Right. Well, some people might argue that if there is a turning point at all in terms of history, 
It's the turning point between goddess-centric cultures to a patriarchal form of culture, of community. Would that make some sense? Well, I think, yeah, this is not our first major revolution. We see major power shifts throughout our written history, be it the scientific revolution, the industrial revolution, or going back to the the Renaissance. These are all major changes, and not just changes in things like technology, but changes in who has the power. Uh Right. So at one point, the church had all of the power, and then that shifted. And at one point, we saw the planet as being the center of the universe, and then that shifted to being just a part of everything else. And we saw even our existence was dictated by religious thought. And then the existence was dictated by if you can't measure it, it doesn't exist in the scientific revolution. So all of these paradigm shifts are in our history. This is just the latest one. Right. Well, what you're talking about in the uh, second book is a shift toward a different kind of world. To get there, you say that we need to reevaluate the ownership works, how currencies and economies operate, how governments are elected, and how we operate as individuals in the world, etc. Can you talk about one of the main pillars of this shift? For example, you talk about the evil of being able to make money simply by owning either money itself or land. How might that one change shift the way the future unfolds? Right. So this was actually identified by a fella in the late 1800s by the name of Henry George. And he reached this conclusion through pretty straightforward economic formulas and mathematics that said that if you owned land and made your income from the ownership of land, it was what he called an economic rent. And a rent is not the rent in the sense of when you have an apartment for a few years and you pay out rent every month. The idea of economic rent is actually an economic term, which means that you have a benefit, usually a monetary benefit, from some concept, be it ownership or advantage, that doesn't cost you anything. So in the case of land, that would be a benefit that can provide you with income, can provide you with financial advantage, but once you've declared ownership, it doesn't degrade in any way. It doesn't cost you anything necessarily to keep that land providing for you. It's not an economic input the same way that it might be if you were to rely on labor that always requires additional inputs and additional wages. So this was referred to as an economic rent. And he showed through his math that basically if you could declare that advantage and leverage it enough, you could eventually gain a huge advantage over the economy itself and become the leading edge. And I think in some respects, when you think about it, you don't even have to know the economy and the economic math to understand that land is a very limited supply. It's a natural resource. And once you can start carving up the earth and declaring ownership of bits and pieces of the earth, you're already limiting the number of players. And eventually you'll get to the point where you've carved it all up. You've got all the players. Nobody else is going to be playing that game anymore. And the people who do own the land will start to consolidate their holdings and start to own more. But that's also a mindset shift, right? Because what we're talking about here is a kind of reversal from hunter-gatherer to agrarian communities. We're kind of moving back towards communal land that hunter-gatherers would share in. Right, in a sense. And the idea that he had was that 
It's not communism, for a start. Put that out there right now, that it wasn't that the state or the community should own everything. It was basically that, as a natural law, the community should theoretically own or have control of land and natural resources. If you go into land and you acquire the right to be there, which is possible under his system, and you build a house and you do improvements, all of those belong to you. You own them. And that makes sense because I guess one of the example I give in the book is if you go into a forest and pick up a piece of wood, can you say, well, that's my piece of wood? Well, not if you believe that wood belongs to nature. But if you sit there for two weeks and carve it into a bowl, is that your bowl? Well, yeah, of course it's your bowl. You made it. But then does that further give you the right to go into a natural forest, cut down all the trees, make them all into bowls, and say the forest was yours because you've now made them into bowls? No, there has to be lines drawn and boundaries. And that was what he was exploring was where do you draw those limits? So for him... If you built a house or cleared some land, you owned all of the improvements that you made, but you didn't own the land. Mm. And so to justify your occupation of that resource, you paid what he called a land value tax. And in fact, that was the only tax that he wanted in the whole of society was a land value tax. So anybody who occupied land, they paid for the right to be there. And that was it. A lot of what you're talking about seems to me to align itself with nature. Man-made laws, but more in line with nature. Well, yeah, because in a sense, you're getting back to the idea that man is in some ways very little different from any other animal. You can declare territories, and you can defend your territory, and you can reap benefits from your territory. He didn't say that if you were planting stuff on your property that all belonged to the community. No, no, it belonged to the person who planted it. Mm -hmm. So you profit from that in the same way that a bear profits from maintaining a territory and eating in that territory. But the bear doesn't own the land, and the bear can't turn around and rent out his territory to other bears. Yeah. So it kind of does return us to a very natural state. Yeah, you're right. But there's also that situation I've heard of where a person can claim ownership of the land, the surface of the land, but what's beneath it, they do not own. Is that something? How well, that yeah, play? that comes into play because what you, in effect, do when you start going below the land and pulling resources out is you're now dropping the value of that land. So if it's not yours, if you don't own the land, what gives you the right to go in and take that value out and profit from it yourself mm -hmm. while the community in no way profits from that? And furthermore, you are stealing, if you will, that resource from future generations. Right. Because right. it's also the future generations that own the land, not just the community around you. So I'm just having this view right now, Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> but, uh, but kidding aside, seriously, big oil. What you just said there, talk about a major land withdrawal. These are companies, corporations that have manifested complete control of this resource. We should all be getting a piece of that pie. Well, yeah, because if you consider that Canadians own Canada, right. why shouldn't Canadians be getting a dividend from the resources that are pulled out of Canada, as opposed to a foreign country, perhaps, sending in their oil company to come in, pull out resources based on a claim or a deal that they've set up where they own the land, mm -hmm. and then profit by that? 
So, yeah, and again, I have to emphasize that these are resources which are put in place theoretically for future generations as well. You look at the history of Canada going back tens of thousands of years, the resources that were there sustained our First Nations for 20, 30, 40,000 years just fine. And now we're saying, no, 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 we want the European system where we own the land and those resources profit a single lifetime a single lifetime as opposed to being there. Multi-generational. Absolutely. Right. right. So now to make these shifts just in that area alone, it's not just a matter of introducing a land ownership tax. Clearly, there's a whole complication of bureaucratic changes that would have to be put into place. Mm-hmm. How easy is that to do? Well, the way Henry George initially laid it out, he didn't actually have a lot of bureaucratic changes taking place at all. He came up with an idea, a scheme, whereby you essentially phase out property tax and you introduce land value tax at the same time in such a way that for a period of time, indeed, you could run it so that the landowners are not even paying the land value tax. That credit is being applied to their equity so that by the end of, let's say you have a 3% land value tax and they're not paying it for 33 years, At the end of that, they've got a credit equal to the value of the land they're sitting on. And so the government or the community, however you want to look at it, the common people have essentially purchased the ownership of that land back. But you still have the sale of houses and people are still buying houses because that's still an asset that they created. So that's still something that's going back and forth in terms of ownership. Absolutely. But you can indeed phase this in over time in such a way that people don't really see it as a major shift in their pocketbook, except that very slowly the paradigm shift is changing. Yeah, one of the thoughts that I was talking to Peter about the other day in terms of ownership was the fact that we, as human beings, are not permanent, and yet we somehow expect to be able to own something permanently. Yeah. (laughs) Right? We own this object, and we make money off it, and then we die, and the object will go to somewhere, someone else. So ultimately, we can't own it as a permanent thing. No. What we are, in fact, doing is we are experiencing one of the three ownership definitions put out by Holland, I believe, who was a legal scholar, who said that ownership consists of three parts. There is possession, enjoyment, and disposition. Those are the three concepts of ownership. And so what we're really saying is that what counts to us is enjoyment, Mm -hmm. the ability to have that object and enjoy the use of that object. That's what's critical to humans in terms of ownership. But the right of possession and the right of disposition are really unnecessary. And so disposition means that you can't just say, I own this land, therefore I am allowed to burn down all the trees or cut them all down because they're mine. I own them. Mm -hmm. No, you can enjoy them. You have access to them. And in fact, if you can make productive use of them, that's fine. But you can't just willy-nilly destroy things for future generations. Sounds to me like you just described the indigenous lifestyle. Well, it is. And it's one of the complications, in fact, of all of our indigenous land claims and all of the conflict surrounding that. It's not just that we stole the land. And in fact, that's what we did very current these days to hear land acknowledgments before gatherings and meetings and so on. And they often use the term unceded territory. Mm. That means that no one ever gave up that territory. It was simply taken. So it's more than just living on stolen land. 
the real crux to me is that there is a disconnect between how we think of our relationship to the land and how they do. Mm -hmm. So when we say we own the land, what, do you want some of it back? The First Nations response has to be now, yes, we want some of it back. But what they really want to say is, no, we don't want anybody to own it because we don't own land. The land owns us. And it's because you've got that disconnect that this strife and conflict is going to continue for a long time. Uh, I've just unveiled our veggie garden from last year. We had it tarped over. And I'm about to engage in this relationship to this little piece of earth. I'm going to be digging up the soil. I'm going to be planting seeds and watering and weeding and all that. Mm. And it's very much that I don't own that. It really is a relationship that I'm about to enter into. And I think if we think about it more in that way, it changes everything. Yeah, there's a mathematical proof that says that within all of us, there is at least one molecule of oxygen that was in Julius Caesar's last breath. That's an old thing. But if you accept that and can go through the math of that, also within all of us is a molecule of oxygen that was breathed by the last coyote that we saw in our neighborhood. Mm -hmm. We are a part of nature. It is a part of us. And in fact, one of the things I try and do in the book, just because you brought up that example, is I try and put out activities, things that you can do right now as a reader that will connect you to what's in the book. And one of them is creating a garden. Uh Mm. And it's not just because of that connection with nature. To me, a garden is life's classroom. It teaches you so much about Mm -hmm. patience, about life, about how you've got eight sprouts coming up and only one of them's going to produce. So you pull the other seven out. It's got so much there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Not just that. And I just thought of this as you were speaking, actually. We always talk about management and micromanagement. This system, which you've been speaking about, more in connection with nature, would also be a lot less management. In a sense, yeah. Uh, What management are you thinking of in particular? Well, if you acknowledge that a piece of land, for example, exists there for the benefit of all, and that you can use the land but not own it, think of all the laws, all the people that are involved in making sure that all these standards are maintained, that you can't cross my fence, that you can't bring your bicycle over this line, all these things that we've created this encampment of sorts. Like I've got to create now barricades and... uh, Yeah. And in fact, there is a a philosophy that comes off of Georgism, which is what the Henry George's philosophy came to be known as, where, in fact, if you take it to some extremes, the idea of borders was completely thrown out. They said, why have borders? Why do we draw these imaginary invisible lines in places? Right. And my friend today, I was showing him this empty garden to be, and he said, I would like to do the same, but what do you do about rabbits who come and eat? And I said, well, I plant more. (laughs) Basically, to accommodate for animals, they have to eat as well. So why not do that? And then the rabbit assists me by defecating on the other part of the garden, which naturally fertilizes all my other tomatoes. That's right. (laughs) And the rabbit feeds the foxes, which also take out the chipmunks so I can actually enjoy some strawberries. (laughs) So it's an ecosystem. Well, here's another thing I'd like you to talk about, if you would, because it's in the book. And it's somewhat of a radical idea, but it's been tried before. And this is the idea of demurrage currency. Can you talk about how that relates Mm. to this discussion? All right. So it's one of the last things we touch upon because it is a fascinating solution to a whole series of problems that get introduced in the book. One of which is this idea of profiting by just declaring ownership of something. And of course, one of the examples of that is profiting by owning money. 
So when you loan out money, you charge interest on it. And so another one was this idea that I also introduce in the book, whereby money is supposed to stand for or represent real objects that we have in life, and there's supposed to be a fair exchange for them. The only problem is that once you've made that exchange, what happens to the value goes in completely different directions. Mm -hmm. If I buy a loaf of bread and leave it on the counter for a month, the bread degrades to nothing. If I take the money that I get from selling a loaf of bread and put it in the bank, usually the value goes up. It certainly doesn't go down. It doesn't right. disappear. Yeah. Right. So money is supposed to represent real goods, except that their value goes in different directions. So the idea of a demurrage currency is matching up the behavior of money to the behavior of the real objects it's supposed to represent, so that the value of money actually goes down over time, and it's set up in the system to do that. Now, you may think, okay, that's just bizarre. There's no way that you could set up the value of money to go down. Well, they did it. They did it, in fact, and they did it in the Great Depression. The best known example was in Wargel, Germany, where a mayor read up on an article about Henry George and his thinking. And he said, I wonder if I could apply that here. Now, you've got to understand that this mayor is running a small town in Germany, in Austria, I believe, actually, and he's faced with the Great Depression. Now, the Great Depression is not caused by a lack of money. It's caused by the money stops moving. Mm -hmm. So nobody wants to buy anything. Nobody wants to spend it because they're losing their jobs. Hand over fist, the rent is piling up. And so money stops moving. And he thought, all right, what if I introduce this currency? I'm going to print it up and I'm going to pay my workers in it. And the thing about this currency is that they have to buy stamps and put them on the currency every month in order for the currency to retain its value. So if you had a, let's say, a dollar, it was obviously German currency, but let's say it was a dollar and your stamps cost one cent and you had to put them on every month, that means that the dollar is actually decreasing in value by 12% over the year because you have to put on 12 stamps in right, order for right. it to have its dollar value. So he introduced these. And when he paid his workers in these, not exclusively, but half, I think, the income, they realized that if this money was going to go down in value, I better spend it as soon as possible getting its full value. And money started moving and moving like there was no tomorrow in his community. People were buying things. Merchants were saying, well, I may as well take this money because I'm not getting anything else. And if I turn around and spend it quickly, then I've only lost maybe one cent on it. Yeah. And his economy took off. It was a little isolated island in the middle of the Depression. All kinds of other mayors from around were saying, where do we get our miracle currency? Well, word got out and the central banks shut him down. They said, we can't have that. Yeah. We can't have currencies competing against ours. Now, that's not just relegated to history. In fact, there are still demurrage currencies out there today, and they are still operating. There's even a digital currency mm. called Freecoin, which is the Bitcoin equivalent of a demurrage currency. Huh. It's even easier to have it go down in value on a regular basis because it's all electronic. So then what would have to happen in our future world for this kind of thing to really catch on? It's simply a matter of introducing it again. But in local little places or? Well, it would probably have to start locally. Yeah. It would be a difficult sell. But then again, what if I was to tell you that it was in some ways equivalent to a negative interest rate? 
Because mm. if you put the money in the bank and it becomes worth less over time, then it's like a, an interest rate that's negative. And you say, well, nobody's ever going to do that. Right. There are negative interest rates right now. now. Yeah. Huge banks in Europe have central banks have negative interest rates. You put a million dollars in, you will not get a million dollars back. And the reason is that they introduced this in order to stop people putting money in the bank, to put it into the economy and get it moving around. Right. This, they say, is the solution to our economic disparities and our economic crisis. And in fact, if you think back to TSP 148, this is what we talked about with the guaranteed basic income, right. is getting money moving, not people storing it, accumulating it, holding on to it for power. The other interesting thing that comes out of this is, remember when we talked about land ownership, one of the things that happens when you own land with resources, the resources are not worth as much to you as the money is. So you try and extract the resources as quickly as you can, turn them into money, because as we all know, the value of money goes up much higher than the value of trees do. Yeah. So when you introduce the concept of money being worth less over time, it actually makes more sense to leave the resources in the ground or on the ground where you found them and recycle the stuff that's already out there. It makes a lot of sense, but help me understand how that kind of system being in place can reduce the disparity between the haves and the have-nots. Well, one of the things that makes the haves able to maintain their haveness is the fact that if you own wealth, you can make more money faster than anybody else. Okay. So by holding on to money, you actually become a have and you increase the number of have-nots and you widen the gap between them. If the money that you're holding on to becomes worth less and less and less over time, it eradicates that whole concept of by accumulating wealth, I will be a have uh -huh. and I will widen the gap to the have-nots. Nobody is going to accumulate food instead and say, I'm a have and you're a have-not because a year later that food is worth nothing. Right. So for anybody that doesn't understand, it's like a squirrel hoarding nuts. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, don't understand. That's, what, what that squirrel is doing is he's circulating nuts. Right. If nuts just dropped at the bottom of the tree and accumulated, that's all that would happen to them, is they would sit there, right, right and right, they would right, rot. Right, the squirrel right. is making nuts move around and is essentially doing what demurrage currency does in an economy. It's moving the money so that it's active and doing good things. So that form of economics would be called nutsism? <laughs> no, but, but, You're nuts. But, but all kidding aside, what you, what you were talking about was hoarding the wealth, the people at the top end of the scale. Right. Essentially, that's what they're doing. That's what wields them the power because they can withstand whatever happens around them. Right. Whereas the average person is completely affected by those changes. Yeah. So they can just sit there and not only benefit in terms of being okay, they're actually growing at the same time. Yes. Hence what's happening right now with the proposed trillionaires that we're about to create. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. You have the lead edge on this. You're not affected by, well, you are affected by COVID. You're becoming a trillionaire instead of a millionaire. Yeah. Now, one of the ideal future scenarios I think you point at is a world in which governments would be elected in a different way. How do you see that evolving mm -hmm. amongst all these other things? I think that's one of the prerequisites that essentially has to happen because right now under our current system, 
It has to change in some way. If you have a forward-thinking government that introduces really powerful ideas like this that threaten the status quo of the people who have all the wealth, that government's not going to stand for very yeah, long. Right. It's going to have a four-year term, and then it's going to be gone again. We see this constantly over and over again. So we have to find a way that even if the majority of the people are in favor of this, that we get the government that the majority wants. And more and more, we see that systems like Canada's first-past-the-post system are actually structured completely opposite to their desired effect. And the reason I say that is because let's say you have an idea that is very popular with I don't know, 75% of the population. And so everybody basically wants this idea to happen. And you've got 25% who don't agree, who are holding on to the wealth or who are misinformed or who are just simply being led down the wrong path. So you might think, well, the 75% are going to get their way and they're going to get their government. Well, the, what happens in a first-past-the-post system when you have more than two parties, as we have in Canada, mm -hmm. is you have more and more parties gathered around the most popular idea. But the more parties you have gathered, the more you split the vote. Right. So in a sense, those 75% can vote three, four different ways, and suddenly your minority is getting in and running the show. So I think one of the things that I would like to see, certainly myself, is a system whereby you get better representation of the majority, and in fact, more information on what the majority wants. Now, a lot of people talk about proportional representation, these complicated formulas where based on the percentage that voted and what party they voted for, you add more people in from this pool of representatives. Yeah. Complicated. Some people could prove that it's a better. I don't even think we have to go that far. I think all we have to do is on the ballots, you simply rank your candidates instead of choosing just the one that you want as your number one choice and forcing some people to vote strategically because they know about this minority rule thing. You say, I want this person first choice, this person second, this person third, maybe this person fourth. As soon as you've done that, you not only give yourself a way of getting out from under that minority rule, but you also are automatically gathering far more information on what the public wants. Right. Because instead yeah. of just making one choice, they're now illustrating to you four choices. Okay. So how does that play into the citizen values side of the trio? Well, the citizen values are the ones that are looking out for everyone else. They're the ones that are thinking of the broader scope of the world values and so on. The consumer, as Robert Reich laid them out, is the one that looks after your present needs, and the investor is the one that looks after your future needs, and the citizen is the one that manages those two and keeps them under control. So, in a sense, you are creating a much stronger entity for the collective society that's representing those citizen values. If all you have is a government that caters to the corporations and caters to the marketplace, nobody is representing those citizen values, those human values, the idea of justice and beauty and well-being at a greater level. Okay. Based on what you just said, and I know that this is kind of hypothetical at this point. Harry and I were talking about this and he used the phrase of turning a tanker. How long does it take to turn this tanker around? Mm -hmm, yeah. Uh-huh. From your point of view, what is the biggest obstacle that making these changes are facing into? What is the biggest obstacle here? Oh, what is the biggest obstacle? I think the biggest obstacle is just wrapping your head around some of these value changes that are so 
unfortunately foreign to us and yet are so innate to us at the same time, right? Right, right? We all understand human values. We all understand empathy and compassion and well-being and health and justice. We're all born with an innate sense of what's fair and what isn't fair. But what has happened to us is that is beaten out of us in terms of being relevant to the economy. And I think that if you follow the money, that's what they say, follow the money. The biggest obstacle then would probably be the people whose livelihood and whose power is based on the status quo. It's also intrinsically difficult. It's human nature to not do well with change in general. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And unfortunately, what we're seeing now, we are at a very, very dangerous point, I think, in humanity and civilization. It's not just the climate emergency. It's not just pandemics and so on. We are at a really interesting juncture where the power of corporations is not just in terms of their financial assets and in terms of their control and influence over governments through lobbying and so on. They have a phenomenal level of control over us. Mm -hmm. They have the data now. They know how we think. They know what we want to see. They know how to tick off those chemicals in our brains to an amazing level of discrimination and detail, scientifically. As described by Yuval Harari with artificial intelligence, where it gets to know us better than we know ourselves. Absolutely. So how do you break the spell of that in order to make these kinds of changes even possible? That's a question. Well, yeah, that that is the question. And I think that one of the ways of doing it, at least the way that I ended up adopting in the book as being, all right, I'm going to throw all my money on this. I basically, I was sitting at the roulette table of possibilities and I took all my chips and I put them on this one. And that was the basic income to take us back. Because I think nothing else has the potential of shifting our mindset so radically Mm -hmm. in terms of how we think about the future as suddenly, whoa, I'm going to eat next year. I know that because I know the money will be there. What does that say about the money I have in my bank account right now? Mm -hmm. And the connection between the idea of a basic income and the idea of helping people out in the pandemic with the CERB and all these other programs was so consistent Mm -hmm. that people understand it. They actually get it. And it's the one radical idea that has support across the political spectrum. And Mm -hmm. I thought, I'm putting all my money on this one. Uh, To me, what's extremely important now, given all the stresses and problems and challenges that we encounter, I believe that there's even a greater danger now of us losing the ability to be critical thinkers. Because when people are stressed and exhausted, We lose that even more, and people capitulate. And I think that's one of the other things that's going to happen when we talked about government and so on. How do we change the government? Well, one of the things that controls the government is the election process. But when you think about it, the election process happens once every four or five years and so on. Even what they promised may have no relevance to what they're actually doing for the four or five years. A much more significant influence on what governments do is They're being held hostage, in a sense, by the corporations over this concept of jobs. Anytime they want to do anything that's in any way different or moves the agenda forward, moves progress forward, they go, whoa, but there's the jobs. And suddenly they're held hostage to that. They go, okay, well, we cannot eliminate jobs. That's one thing we cannot do. Even if we're changing the nature of jobs, people are going to be up in arms because they're going, no, 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 I'm not trained for that. I, I want to keep my job. I want to retain because they have this connection 
between jobs equals survival. Right. If we remove that, the whole playing field changes. And so are you talking ultimately about a fundamental change in human nature itself? And or are you talking about working with community and making the larger changes and instituting these shifts and that will trickle down into our individual lives and the way we see life itself? I think it has to be a fairly comprehensive thing happening at many levels. So is it a restoring or a rewriting of the humanity and natural world? I don't think so. Not in that sense, because what I'm talking about is restoring a balance to something that we've always had but has been pushed aside. So I'm not telling people they've got to learn what justice is, what humanity is, what well-being is, what beauty is. They already know that. I'm saying that we have to restore that to its prominence and equal preeminence in our value system. So one of the things that we do have to question is, frankly, corporations. Why? Because the idea of a corporation is something that we totally invented, it's totally on paper, and it totally doesn't get the human value system. It mm -hmm. totally doesn't get why it's important for the fishermen to have time off. All it's concerned about is getting more fish and buying more boats. So we've allowed this myth, if you will, and Harari talks about too, how a corporation is a myth. It's a story. It's right, it's a story. Yeah. How we've allowed that story to basically run our lives. And we've got to correct that. So you're talking about changing the story in a way, changing exactly. the storyline. Rewriting like. the story. And I would say, in conjunction with rewriting the story, I also am of the opinion that things have gotten to the point where too many of us are waiting for governments, are waiting for leaders to get us out. And I don't think that's where the answer is. I believe that things have gotten to the point, as you said, the governments are being held hostage by the corporations and so on. And this is not about pointing fingers or blaming, but it's about taking a little bit more self-control. We have to start being the future that we want to see, yeah. which means us as individuals, we have to start making choices which will affect political change. They're not going to do it by themselves. They can't. Uh, well, on the or, other or hand, it's difficult. Sorry. On the other hand, no, no, you're absolutely right. But on the other hand, one of the things we see is that the people at the very bottom of the ladder all over the world are, in fact, turning to the government as the answer. They are saying, we need a leader who's going to fix this for us. And it becomes real easy for someone to step up and say, I've got all the answers. People are starving for that. Right. Yeah, sure. And so your Donald Trump steps up, your Erdogan and so on and says, I have the answers. And people say, great, we're behind you. Yeah. Right. I know logistically what I'm saying is a little bit pie in the sky for a lot of listeners. No, no, no. But I believe that because we're relinquishing the very thing that creates change. Right. It's like at home with your spouse, your good friend, whatever. Changes don't happen until one person decides that something is going to be different. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A little girl named Greta. So, yeah. you know, COVID is over. Let's go back to buying the plastic toys. Let's go back to all the excess waste. Well, how do you expect change to happen? Right. And in fact, I assume that a lot of that is going to take place, that a lot of a society is going to be dragged kicking and screaming back mm -hmm. to the old model. And so that's why my approach in the book and every chapter ends with a what you can do right now. And so 
my approach for the book was to tackle this on two levels. One, to talk about the changes that I think we need to see at the societal level, at the government level, as the whole paradigm level, but also to say, look, you don't need to turn Canada's government around in order to gain some of these benefits. Mm -hmm. You can actually create a gift economy for yourself, among your family and friends. You can actually start a garden. You can actually adopt a different way of looking at life and get many of the benefits that we talked about without necessarily changing the voting system or even introducing a basic income. I definitely want it to be practical and useful for the single reader. And in the meantime, you're helping yourself. You're helping your immune system. You're helping your outlook. You'll probably get a little bit more rest. On and on it goes. Yeah. Yeah. We're coming to the end here. And my final question is this. Somebody's putting a gun to your head, Andrew, and they're saying to you, Andrew Welch, you've written this incredible first book, The Value Crisis. You've written this incredible second book that will be published called Our Second Chance. Two implies three. If there were to be a third book in this trilogy, gun to your head. <laughs> From this side as well. <laughs> yeah. What do you think that book would be talking about? Ooh, it would have to be a loaded gun, certainly. <laughs> what would that... It would be a history of how our society used to be before... And, and the new world Before the now. great change. I don't... Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it would be autobiographical. It would be talking about how we used to have phones on the wall that had a little spirally cord that connected <laughs> them to our ear. I don't... I, I would love for there to be a need for a third book in that sense... But, yeah, have, have to see the gun, have to see the bullets going in. This is a tough job. Yeah, yeah. 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 I get it, I get this it. Is, I, I want to say something apart from that. Sitting here, having done the last couple of weeks with you guys, I've really enjoyed these three sessions. I've learned a few things. More importantly, I look at you both as two kind of examples of a lot of the things we talked about over the last three weeks in terms of where you are, the choices you've made, and where you find yourselves. And I'm kind of somewhere in between, but I just want to express the appreciation I have for the work you both do. Even writing this book, some people will listen to this and go, well, yeah, another idea has been said before and so on. But I know that you spent a lot of time digging up information, researching, and a lot of thought has gone into this. And the hope that's created by it, which I think is something that's very, very important. And Harry, you too, with the work you do with your poetry and all the things that are connected to the things we discuss on these podcasts, it's not quantifiable. Don't have hope, you have nothing. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, unless there's anything else you'd like to add that people should mm -hmm. take away, what's the takeaway that people should ultimately have when they read this book? By the way, when is it coming out? When is the sense of ETA for this uh, book? Very close, I think. We're yeah. right now in the final edit, so the publishing company can't wait to uh, get their hands on it and uh, print it up. Can you divulge the name of the company? Yeah, it's Captus Press. Captus? Captus Press, okay, yes. Okay, good, good. Uh, th I think the bigger catch is going to be the concept of getting it actually out there because I'm not going to be able to be touring around the country speaking on this and presenting the ideas and carrying 
suitcases of books around and so on for quite some time, I think. Unless you relocate to New Zealand. And unless I relocate to New Zealand. I will start my book tour there. That's right, in New Zealand. Uh, and, we'll, and we'll move on from there. Yeah, we're just working on it as fast as we can. It's also, I think, going to be competing with a lot of other COVID books coming out there, because a lot of people are sitting down there writing their life story as well, so sure, right, uh, there's right. going to be a lot of that. I think your book is so far beyond, both books are beyond COVID, yeah. so re-mention the website and so on, where people can get all the information that we've talked about and other information that's coming. Absolutely. TheValueCrisis.com is the website. And I'm actually putting on lots of great links to all of the talks we've had. So if you're listening to this podcast and weren't sure where to find the other related podcasts, they're all on a single web page. They're kind of gathered there. Okay. So you can see some links on that. That's probably the best place to start, thevaluecrisis.com. Perfect. Brilliant. What a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, Andrew. it has been a pleasure, really. And yeah. uh, hope we talk again. Yes, after book three. After book three. <laughs> <laughs> you mean strike three. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Ciao. Again. Ciao, Peter. Ciao, Harry. The Sill Podcast is a Connecting Dots Media production available at thesillpodcast.com. Thank you for your donation to The Sill Podcast.